there. Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. This is a little bit different than typical. I was going to go back to Ecclesiastes this week, but due to a few different things, one of them being the text just kind of threw me for a loop from Ecclesiastes, so I thought I'm going to take another week to think about it a little more. Um, But this is a sermon that I had prepared um, for the last Sunday of 2020. If you remember, we our family got COVID Saturday night, um, so we quickly had to cancel church, but I had a, a sermon prepared. Um, and it was supposed to be the end of a year, the beginning of a, of a New Year sermon. Um, but I think it's okay that we still look at this a, a month in. Um, and it's just a challenge to us as we look to the future um, to run in such a way as to win the prize. And it ties in with, with last week's message. Last week we performed baptisms. We also looked at baptism. And one of the things we said is that baptism is often the first step of a newborn Christian. When in some ways this morning we're going to be looking at the last step and, and all the steps in between. Um, that first step and, and us running the Christian race. So follow along if you would in your Bibles. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. Apostle Paul, through the Holy Spirit, the, the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul writes these words. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Let's go to the Lord again and ask for his help. Father, we thank you again for your word. And Father, now we ask that you would write your eternal word on our hearts. Father, we want to live differently because of our time together this morning. And that can't come just by the joy that we have of being with some other people that we kind of like. It can only come through a supernatural work of your spirit, God. So Father, help us in this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When the week that I was originally planning on preaching this message, um, I was also preparing for another event that eventually... COVID actually kept me from being a part of, and that was uh, Ronnie and Martha's wedding. And my role in that service was that I was supposed to give the charge. Martha had given me an order of service a few months ahead, and beside my name was written, Charge and Vows. As they headed into a, a new stage of life, as they began life together, part of my job was to send them into it with a charge, with a commission. And my original title for this morning's message had that in its title. It was a pastoral charge for the new year. A pastoral charge for the new year. Now, because of preaching this into the second month, the title of that has changed. But that is still my goal this morning, to send us into what remains of 2021 and and what remains of the years that we have left here on earth with a purpose, with a commission, with a charge. And that charge comes directly from Paul's words at the end of verse 24, where he writes this, run or so run that you may obtain it. This is Paul's charge to us. So the CSB says, run in such a way as to win the prize. Run in such a way 
as to win the prize. That is the charge. That is the challenge for us. That's what we, the mindset that we should live our lives with, that we are running the Christian race as to win a prize. Now, what does Paul mean by that? And what do I mean by highlighting that? Do I mean that we should start a Living Hope Fellowship uh, running team? Don't worry, I, I do not. I, I, I need it, but I assure you I'm probably not going to be the first one on the list to sign up for that. And of course, Paul is not referring to physical running here, but he is using running as a metaphor. Actually, more, more appropriately, he's using it as an illustration. That's what our verses are this morning. They are an illustration of a point that Paul is trying to make in the hard heads of the Corinthians. And if we go back to the previous verses, we, we see the point that he is trying to drive home with these, with this illustration. Just look at the previous paragraph, starting in verse 19, where he writes, For though I am free of all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside of the law I became as one outside of the law. Not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ. That I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak. That I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means, I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. That I might share with them in its blessings. What Paul is saying in these verses is that the way I am living my Christian life is the way of whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. And he had some caveats. He's not going to go outside of the commands of Christ. But whatever it takes to advance the gospel, I am willing to do it. And he says this in comparison, actually in contrast to what he is hearing about how the Corinthians are living out their Christian lives. In contrast to Paul's motto of whatever it takes, it seems that the Corinthian motto is as little as possible. You can look through the headlines of 1 Corinthians to see this attitude among the Corinthians. It's a picture of a church, of a group of Christians in Corinth who are not willing to make any changes in their lives when it comes to following Christ. A group of Christians who are more concerned about themselves than other believers or how are they how they are presenting Christ to the watching world a group of christians who in comparison with paul's whatever it takes christian life are living a do as little as possible christian life in the verses leading up to ours paul uses himself as an example but in our verses uh, paul turns the corinthian believers attention to an illustration that they would have been they would have all been familiar with And that's where we begin this morning. The first of our three points is that it is a familiar illustration. A familiar illustration. And we see the familiarity of it when with the first words that Paul starts with in verse 24. He says, do you not know? And this question is a rhetorical question. Because he knows that they know. Because the illustration that he is using is one of the most familiar scenes for these Christians who lived in Corinth. 
If you think of Jesus as a teacher, he often used illustrations that the world around him was familiar with. Usually the illustration of agriculture, of farming and planting and harvesting. Because surrounding him typically were farmers. And it was an illustration that they knew. If you are follow, if you ever tune into Greenwood's, uh, Greenwood Mennonite Church's um, live streamers, watch their videos, you know they're working through the, the armor of the Lord. And, and I looked this morning and Richard was holding up a shield. And they, they're using these illustrations. And Paul used these illustrations that the people he was speaking to were familiar with. And here he uses the illustration of sports. And in particular, the illustration of running, training, and winning. And this illustration, again, would have been familiar to the Corinthians. It's like Paul showing up here and preaching about, uh, do you not know that all the football players competing tonight are competing for a prize? Because we know it. It's Super Bowl Sunday. We know that event. We know the situation that surrounds that. In Corinthians, they knew about running because that it was in Corinth where the famous Isthmian Games, there we go, Isthmian Games, too many syllables there. Isthmian games were held. And you can see on the map there where, where Corinth is. It was on this little isthmus that connected the mainland of, of Greece with this little output that was called Achaia at the time. And its location not only made it a place of great economic and cultural significance, but it also made it a prime location for athletics. And it was in here, it was here in Corinth it was here in Corinth that one of the greatest sporting events of the world at that time would take place, the Great Isthmian Games, which were second only to the Great Olympic Games, which we still have today. And if we're familiar with the Olympic Games, then we, are, we, are, we have a pretty good idea of what these Isthmian Games were like. An, an event that included many different types of sporting events, one of those was running. So when Paul asked the question, do you not know about runners... He knows that the answer is yes. He knows their immediate response will be yes, of course. We, we know all about running. In fact, it's part of our culture. Alistair Begg says of the Corinthians and their familiarity with running, he says in Greece at the age of seven, children were immediately introduced to the world of athletics and gymnastics. They would be put through training daily. So part of their upbringing, in fact, was to train for these athletic competitions. And as they got older, the training would get more and more difficult. Part of their training, as part of their training, one of the things they would, they would have to do is swim in freezing cold river water. And the goal of all of this is, is that they were trying to produce within Greek culture a noble soul within a beautiful body. A noble soul within a beautiful body. This was the goal of the Greeks, to create a superior race. Fathers and mothers, they wanted smart, intelligent, well-mannered children on the inside, accompanied by a strong, fit, good-looking boy or girl on the outside. And it was that mindset that gave the rise to these athletic games. Because as a way to test the development of their children, they would create these competitions. And these competitions led to the Olympic Games, but then also to smaller, more local sporting events such as these Isthmian Games. Everyone would have known exactly what Paul meant when he referred to runners running to win a prize. One writer writer describes how consumed the culture was with sports when he wrote this, that the masses demanded only two things of the political establishment of their day, bread and games. By day they stood about idle, and in the evening 
They watched sports. That sounds a lot like our day and a lot like today. We're gonna, we're, we're gonna, we're gonna, tonight we're gonna be idle and eat bread and watch sports. Watch the Super Bowl. Which reminds us that not only are sports familiar for the Corinthians, but they are familiar for us as well. We know about running and sports. And we also know about the training that is required for those who compete in these sports. We understand that when we watch someone on television, or hopefully we understand, maybe some of our children don't quite fully grasp the understanding of this, but we understand and we try to teach our children that those who we see on the television, they didn't just arrive at that point, but instead they put hours and hours and hours of of practice and self-discipline to reach that point. That's what Paul points out in verse 25. He says, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. Or the NIV says that they go into strict training. And again, for these Grecians, it was strict training. In addition to a lifetime of, of training and exercising in order to actually compete in these games, when it came time for the games to happen, they had to go through a 10-month period of undergoing different tests and exercises that you had to pass in order to compete. Epictetus, Epictetus, a Stoic philosopher of this day, writes this, those who say I, those who say I wish to win an Olympic victory must consider the demanding task before them. You have to submit to discipline, follow a strict diet, give up sweet cakes, train under compulsion, At a fixed hour in cold or heat, you must not drink cold water nor wine just whenever you feel like it. Olympic victories do not come without sweat. This is the training that would have to be gone under or be undergone in order to compete in these games. But of course, all this was not done simply to compete. But this was done in hopes that they might win. This is why they entered the Isthmian Games. This is why boys and girls were trained from little on up. Not simply that they might step on the track. Not simply that that they might someday wear the jersey of their favorite team. But they did it so that they might win. But what did they win? Verse 25 reminds us of what they win. They do all of this, he says, to win a perishable wreath. The prize that the winners would receive at these events was a small laurel wreath that was placed on their heads, a, a wreath that might last a few days, maybe a few weeks, but would eventually wither up and, and crumble away. This was what they devoted their lives to. This was the prize. But of course, the wreath itself wasn't the prize, but what that wreath represented. It represented that they were the best, that they were the winners until the next time the games rolled around. And just as that wreath would wither up and die, for most, so would the memory of those winners in people's eyes. We see it today in our Olympic Games as well. Every year in almost every event, it seems there's a new world record. Someone becomes the fastest, the best, the greatest at that event that they've spent their whole time working to, and they're finally at the peak until the next time the Olympic Games come around. And then there's someone else who is better. And the name of the previous record holder is erased and replaced by this year's winner. Only one day, of course, to be replaced by another. But yet they have spent their entire lives to reach this point. Parents devoted countless 
hours, miles of traveling, dollars spent on equipment for something that so quickly fades. That's the illustration that Paul gives us. An illustration that Corinth was familiar with, but an illustration that we're familiar with. And from his illustration, he moves to the application. But in a sense, there's not even really a point to say the application. I can always tell when I when an illustration has landed the, the way that I hoped it was is because where there was once smiles and perhaps laughters in, in, the, in, in you guys, there suddenly just kind of falls a hush. And we all understand exactly what this illustration is pointing to. And I imagine the Corinthians, as they read the end of verse 25, they understand what Paul's talking about. We devote all our time and our energy for this a perishable crown, a fleeting treasure. But what about the imperishable? We talk about it, we know about it, we sing about it, we celebrate it. But what are we living? Are we living for it? Paul says, you're not willing, just the chapter before, you're not willing to lay aside meat sacrificed to idols in order to obey Christ's command to love your brothers and sisters, but yet athletes and, and you yourselves will lay aside anything that gets in your way of winning a crown made out of twigs and leaves. The application is obvious. But Paul gives the application not in terms of what he calls the Corinthians to do, but he, he, he tells them what he himself has done. He points to himself and puts himself in the place of the athlete. Notice in verse 26, he goes into the first person. He says, I do this. Actually, he says, I do not do this. He says, look at me. And that might sound arrogant to us and We know Paul says in another place, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And we think, well, that's a little edgy, Paul. Do you really mean that? I don't know if I feel comfortable saying that. And I thought about that again this morning as I was, as I was driving here. You know, we're uncomfortable saying, imitate me as I imitate Christ. But how long are we okay with that being our standard? If we know there's something wrong in our lives that we don't want people to imitate, why are we allowing it to sit there? Instead of instead of saying, I don't want people to imitate me, why aren't we doing something about those problems in our life so that we are worthy of imitating? Paul says, here's what I'm doing. And he encourages us to do this as well. He says, I do not run aimlessly. I don't run aimlessly. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So, because of this, I do not run aimlessly. The NIV says, I do not run like a, I, I do not run like a man running aimlessly, or the amplified who always likes to add a few things in parentheses. I do not run with uncertainty without definite aim. I don't run like I don't know where I'm running to. Or the New Living Translation puts it in the positive. So I run with purpose in every step. I run with purpose. I run like I know where I'm going. This is the only time that this word in the ESV is aimlessly. It's the only time it's used in the New Testament. But it's a a word that means showing lack of certainty or goal. I don't run like I'm uncertain. Or like I don't know where the goal is. In secular Greek, this word was used to describe something that was obscure. 
something that was hidden, something that was, was hidden from our view, kind of like in a mist. We're not sure about it. Paul says, I, I, I'm not running as though I'm not quite sure about the prize. If you look at the Christian landscape today, I think perhaps we are not quite sure about the prize, so we run aimlessly this way and that. Paul says, I know where I'm headed. In the stadium where these running events were held, the track would go from one end of the stadium to the other. It, it wasn't like our tracks today where you run around in a loop, but it was run in a straight line. The race was in a straight line. And actually the word uh, race in verse in verse 24 is in Greek the word stadion, which is where we get our English word stadium. In fact, the CSB translates verse 24 as stadium. And our English word comes from this word stadium, which in Greek the word stadion meant literally meant 60, 600 feet, which was how long a Greek stadium was because that's how long the races were. They started at one end of the stadium to the other. So the stadium was made to be 600 feet. And that's where we get our name stadium. And the contestants would start at one end of the stadium where one pillar would be at the starting line. And at the other end, 600 feet away where the races race would finish, there was another pillar. And to be a, a good runner, you, you could not have your eyes distracted by the people in the stands or even the runners in the lanes beside you. But the best of the runners from the start of the race to the finish, they had one thing that was filling their vision. And that was that final pillar. The author of Hebrews, also using the illustration of the Christian life as a race, says that we need to run with endurance the race that is set before us with our eyes fixed on Jesus, looking to Jesus, our eyes fixed on that final pillar. In Colossians, Paul writes that we are to live our lives as seeking the things that are above, continually looking for the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God and setting our minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. Of course, we live on this earth and we have to look around on this earth, but that is not where our vision is set. Don't run aimlessly. How many of us, again, this was originally prepared and and I, I did adjust it this week, but originally prepared at the end of 2020. And how many of us have spent the last 12 months in this pandemic, in this time of confusion, how many of us have spent it aimlessly? Running this way and then running that way. Now we can blame it on our shifting circumstances or, or blame it on the shifting of the circumstances by our government leaders. But the one thing that did not shift was the one thing that we are supposed to live our lives with our eyes fixed on. That has not changed. It has not moved. And Paul says, I do not run chasing after all these moving things. I run knowing where I'm going. I don't run aimlessly. But notice too that he does run. And that word run here means strive. It means to, to strive. And I, I looked up the word in a dictionary at the end of in the end of December and I tried to find what dictionary it was and I couldn't find it this morning to, to put it up here. Whatever dictionary I, I looked up, I, I love this definition. It might have been an older dictionary. But I love this de- definition of strive. To go steadily by springing steps so that both feet leave the ground for an instant in each step. I I just, it's just a fun definition. 
to go steadily by springing steps so that both feet leave the ground for an instant in each step. Is that not how we want to run the Christian race? We want to run it steadily. We want to, we want to run it with joy, even though we're running it through trials. But we want to run it with springing steps because our eyes are filled with the prize. Another definition describes it as involving, this word strive as involving strenuous effort. It's, it's, it's work. And that's what the image Paul gives in Philippians 3, 13 and 14. He says, I forget what lies behind and I strain forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal of the prize of the up, for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The picture here is of someone, you've seen them at the finish line where they are straining forward for that finish line to get just uh, just their nose ahead of everyone else. Every muscle is involved. Every ligament is stretched. Every ounce of their being is reaching for the prize. We all want to forget what lies behind in these past 12 months. But are we stretching for what lies ahead? Not not just the end of this pandemic, that will be nice, but for the prize. Paul says in 1 Corinthians that he, he runs this way. He runs this way so that he does not make the mistake of being someone who disqualifies himself. After preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. That's why I run with purpose. The word that is used here for preaching is the word herald, which is also a word that, that, that existed in the sporting world of Corinth. The, the herald is the one who would announce the athletes as they entered the stadium. They would introduce them and then they would call the athletes to come to the starting line for the race to begin. And Paul says, I do not want to make the mistake of merely being a herald. Of being the one who announces this great race. uh, uh, Who tells the wonders of this race. And even calls others to join the race. But I never run myself. What an incredible tragedy. To spend your entire life around the race. And around the racers. But never actually run. And thus never receive the prize that the runners receive. Paul says, I run with purpose. And then he says, I, neither do I, I don't run aimlessly, but, but neither do I box as one beating the air. Boxing was also an event that would take place. And he says, I am not shadow boxing, the New Living Translation says. One who just, who punches but never makes contact. One commentator, Schmidt, Translated like this, I fight as one who does not swing aimlessly in the air. I don't run aimlessly, I don't swing aimlessly. But instead, my punches land where they're supposed to land. But that answers the ask. We ask the question there. Well, where are they supposed to land? Where are our punches supposed to land as we run this race? We knocking out the opponents or uh, what, what, what is he talking about? Paul says the place where my punches land is where they're supposed to land. And where they're supposed to land is that they land on me. I do not box the air as one beating, I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and I keep it under control. NIV says, no, I beat my body and make it my slave. Barclay even more vividly says, I batter my body to make it my slave. 
And Barclay captures what Paul is saying because the, what Paul is saying, the word that he uses literally means, that word for discipline or beat or batter, it literally means to hit under the eye, thus causing a black eye. That's the literal word that he uses here. And this comes straight from the boxing matches that would have taken place in these Isthmian games where the goal of the boxer was to get the other person to raise their hand in defeat. To surrender and say, I've had enough. And the quickest way to do that was to make it so your opponent couldn't see you. To hit your opponent right under the eye. Paul says, that's what I do. Now, of course, this is not literally. Some have taken this literally and beaten themselves. This is not what Paul is talking about. In fact, that's an, that's an easier route than what Paul is talking about. But Paul is saying, this is what I do to my sinful flesh. I force it into submission. So it's not only the positive that Paul emphasizes, I run, but it's also the negative, I discipline. I, I run and I discipline. When I first put this sermon together, it was the week, the very week, that the allegations of, of Ravi Zacharias um, were confirmed, or at least were, were said by RZIM, that most likely this did happen, his, this, this allegations of sexual, sexual misconduct. Ravi passed away in 2020, very early in the year, and most of these came out after his death. Some came out before it. And the saddest part of it all was the head of RZIM is now his daughter, and she was the one making this statement about her father. And we don't need to try to judge Ravi or to see where he is or anything like that, but he is an example of what happens when we do not Follow the warning, the challenge, the commission of Paul. Someone who was a champion of the Christian faith. I I have his books on my bookshelf. A defender, a great apologist, a defender of the faith, but was such a failure in the area of his sexual purity. So if you think Paul's words here are too strong, that is a reminder that they may not be strong enough. We must cause our flesh to cry out, I submit. My mind went to the words of John Owen as I read that news bulletin from RZIM where John, or John Owen says this, he says, Do you mortify? He's a Puritan who lived hundreds of years ago, so it's a different language, but the language actually helps remember it. Do you mortify the flesh? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Here's the important line. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Be killing sin or sin will be killing and destroying you. Be killing sin always and continually. Make it your daily work. Putting sin to death in your life. You never reach a point where you can say, I'm okay now. Be killing sin. Be getting rid of it wherever it creeps up its ugly head. Paul says, I have crucified the flesh. I've crucified myself to the world. It's the language, the drastic language he uses. Because he knows that if he does not, sin will continue to creep up in his life. God said to Cain, he said, Cain, be careful. And this is the New Living Translation. Because sin is crouching at your door. It is eager to control you. 
And sin has not lost its power since the opening days of creation. But it, it is it is ever present, if not more present. It is eager to control you, but you must subdue it and be its master. Paul says, I subdue sin by keeping my flesh in check. When the race was approaching, again, runners did not eat any excess food. That They did not skip out on their exercises. They avoided anything that might cause them to be unfit for the race. And Paul says, we must do the same in the Christian race. Finally, we arrive from illustration to application to exhortation, a finishing exhortation. Not only is it a last point of the sermon, but it's about finishing. About finishing, but yet it goes back to the first line of this verses. Verse 24 again. Run in such a way as to win the prize, as to get the prize. New Living Translation, so run to win. Here's Paul's commission, his charge, his exhortation, his cry. Run to win the prize. David Garland says, Paul is admonishing believers to run as if your life depended on it. Because it does. In his sermon on these verses, Alistair Begg ended with the illustration of Eric Liddell. Which is a fitting illustration because not only was Eric Liddell a Christian who ran the spiritual race well, but he was also an Olympian. You might know Liddell's story from the chariots of fire, but if that's all you know, I would encourage you to find a, a biography and learn more about him. One of the ones that I read a few years ago by Duncan Hamilton said was called For the Glory, Eric Liddell's journey from the Olympic from Olympic champion to modern martyr. And perhaps that title alone makes you aware that you need to learn more about this because you did not know Liddell was a martyr. But Liddell after his career, but that's not quite correct because it was in the midst of his career when he was at the peak of his of his physical fitness. He could have won many more medals. He cut off his career and instead went to be a missionary to China. And he went to a mission, be a missionary to China where he eventually died of a brain tumor in a prison camp. But what we know of Liddell, what we know Liddell most for was as the Olympian who refused to run on Sundays. Liddell was preparing to run in the 200 meter race and then he found out that it was on a Sunday. So at the last minute he said, I'm not going to run that race. And he switched to the 400 meter. As soon as he found out, he switched. And the 400 meter, that might sound easy for us who aren't runners, but it was a completely different race that required completely different training. And he had no training for the 400 meter. But yet he won. And not only did he win, he broke the Olympic record and the world record at that time. And in that race, his speed in the 400 meters, his speed in the first 200 meters was unbelievable. He he was 10 feet ahead of the next fastest runner. But again, this is the 400 meter. And he was his time at that first 200 was only a second less than the time for the runner who won the 200 just a few, just a little bit before that. Now, Now, people watching this race they thought, well, Liddell has messed up. He has run the 400 meter as though he was running the 200. One of the newspaper journalists watching said that Liddell was running the race like a madman and that he surely could not keep up the pace. Here they thought is where his, his lack of training, I forgot I have a picture of Eric Liddell. 
Here, here they thought is where his lack of training in the 400 has messed him up. But that evening after the race was over and after Liddell had won, that evening the, rep- the, the newspaper said this, quote, it was the last five, it was the last 50 meters that meant the making or breaking of Liddell. It was the last 50 meters. No one would know of Eric Liddell if he, all he ran was the first 200 meters of a 400 meters. If he, he set a record pace for half of a race. No one would know that. But it was because he finished the race. And he finished the race well. Liddell was later asked, how in the world did you do it? How'd you win the 400 meter race in such a remarkable time? And his answer was this. He says, the secret of my success over those 400 meters was that I ran the first 200 as hard as I could. But then in the second 200, by God's help, I ran harder. I ran the first 200 as hard as I could, but for the last 200, I ran harder. And that is the charge that I want to give us. And I want us to hear from these verses. No matter where you are in your race, run so to win the prize. Some of you, like Lydell, are in the last 200 meters of your race. Some of you may be in the last 50. Do not rest on the way that you ran the first 350 meters. Paul says, do not look back, but look forward. Look at the prize. Look to the finish line and keep running. Run towards the goal. It was once said of the famous racehorse, man of war, that some horses led him at the first turn. Some horses, they led him at the backstretch. A few led him at the far turn. But no horse ever led him in the home stretch. Isn't that what you want to be said of us? Of us here at Living Hope Fellowship, of us Christians living in this time, that no one is going to run the Christian race better down the home stretch than we are. We didn't flounder towards the finish line, but we finished well. You may have run the first 200 meters of your life hard and in remarkable ways, but let me admonish you, run the second 200 meters even harder. Less than a year after setting the record, after his record setting pace, less than a year after that, Eric Liddell was on board a train leaving Edinburgh on the way, on the first leg of his trip to the mission field in China. Thousands were at the train station to send him off. Cheering, shouting, giving one last celebration of their hero. And as they did, Eric Lydell, he hung out the train window and he shouted out to them, let our motto be this, Christ for the world. For the world needs Christ. And that's the way he rode off into the mission field and to his death. Why? Because the world needed Christ. So he was taking them to them. He was running with my eyes fixed on the prize. Not the Olympic medal back at his house. Not the highest step on the podium where he had been just a year ago. Not even the accolades of the thousands that were there to send him off. There was only one prize that Liddell had his eyes fixed on. And that was the imperishable prize. That was the eternal treasure. And so he ran. 
and so may we. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. And we're going to close with a song that just fits so well with Lydell's last words there, his, his motto of Christ for the world, for the world needs Christ. The song, it would have been a real fitting song for us to sing the, the original week I had prepared this message because it's a song put to the tune of, how do we say that? Auld Lang, Auld Lang Sign. All, but the words are different. All glory be to Christ. And let's let this be our motto. As, 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 as Lydell